Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Hi Bala, welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. As you know, we've been featuring people who've been associated with software and bring their own personal stories of what worked, what didn't work, what they learned, what could be useful for others and so on. And we usually start with the guest introducing oneself. So if you can tell us about yourself, then we'll let the conversation flow from there. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I am Bala, Bala Srinivasan, work as, as a distinguished engineer in IBM. What I do in IBM is broadly, I work as a chief technology officer for cloud application services focused on cloud transformation areas. That, that's what I do in IBM. What got you there? What were you doing before? Okay. So uh, interesting because my first uh, almost like 10 plus years was in a small product company, right? And uh, which laid a, a lot of foundation on how software is developed, what is the software engineering lifecycle, and really gets the nuts and bolts of code from, from requirements to, to deploy and manage. This is very foundational. And when you build on top of it, then I spent my next five years in Infosys, where I did spend time on complex architecture and enterprise architecture related work with clients who had a larger problem of enterprise-wide architectural challenges. That actually helped me get to understand the broader architecture challenges customer phase and also uh, try to abstract your thinking. You're, you, you're probably good at the nuts and bolts of technology, but when you start abstracting it, that's where the challenge comes. And then it's just not technology, it's, it's navigation, it's, it's communication, all the elements come to picture. So that's a good piece of learning. And then I joined IBM, which, which is known for its complex uh, system executions. So there we had a practice called complex system integration. So I was going through a lot of uh, those things. I've did several engagements in that space, right from complex cloud transformations to complex uh, accounts, 1,200 people accounts where some significant uh, software development and transformation work was happening. So each of them were distinct experiences. Some of them are, are really domain-led initiatives where there is a business waiting to drive some growth out of this or at the end of the day, there was an IT initiative trying to derive some cost out of it. Each of them had a different perspective. So when you go through all these experiences, you understand the dimensions of things. Then what I did was in the last few years, a lot of focus on cloud because there's a lot of buzz on cloud. People are getting into cloud. Not much, not many people have really moved on to cloud really, right? But then Given that, uh, I kind of grabbed that opportunity to build something around this in, in my services part of the IBM system. We called it cloud business solutions, where you take a lot of your assets and accelerators and pre-built solutions and start making a commercial model around it to offer them as a service on cloud. That okay. was the specialization, which is what got me to my uh, distinction here, right? Okay. Interesting. I'm just trying and thinking to see how to sequence the set of questions. Yeah, a lot of questions that were triggered by this. <laughs> the yeah. first is, um, you said that you started with a small product company. Yeah. And then you were on the enterprise architecture. Yeah. So which uh, is probably a big shift in terms of your own thinking or how one should approach the problem. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
so what were some things that you learned or that you had to unlearn looking at a, a product that you develop inside out versus going into an enterprise which probably already has a lot of pieces running now call them legacy call them not uh, coexistent whatever is there and how do you kind of create an architecture for that yeah so the learning from i mean the the the, the product company global automation was that technology it was all technology we built technology we created technology all of that so that is one side of the world right but then the the foundation was laid a little bit by we did a large uh, project uh, for a for a private equity firm where you got a sense of how a large system would look like right it was a, it was a large system by its own standards because it was data it was all about company trying to do all its investment analysis and all that other stuff so it was a fairly big system right so mm-hmm. that kind of gave a bit of an idea about what it could be what it could look like but then when i transitioned into to this large enterprise architecture world one thing which helped me was i actually first thing which i did was i went through this whole togaf as a as a framework not okay. as much as much about uh, you can it, it doesn't teach you what to do how to architect solutions or but it kind of gives you a perspective at which you need to look at an architecture for an enterprise that okay. is more important so the mm-hmm. internalization of how a large and complex architecture would look like for an enterprise really comes from that learning now you start applying whatever you have done before as mm-hmm. well as you get into client engagement for example there was a power major in in europe i went in and said they wanted to kind of get first document all of their architectural pieces into the, that was a very simple thing right i didn't have to devise any architecture but i just had to document all of that which is a good start for me i went in and it took about 3 months in their overall power plant and and they, they had a three layered system where you know, they had they assembled the the base product from suppliers quality checks and all of that comes in picture and then they create assemblies and then they create power plants on top of it. so three okay. layers of of their so it is a well layered architecture from a from an organization standpoint so it was easier for me to understand and then it was easier for me to translate it into an enterprise architecture tool tool called system architecture so that actually ability to get the business process side of it ability to get the technology side of it the application side of it then they asked me this question okay tell me how many of these applications are getting outdated so that was a good question for me because oh, okay. then i went back and looked at the at the tool and said okay generate i can generate these kind of reports to figure out that that kind of a thing right so then i started realizing the, the importance of getting that view for an organization because there are a lot of questions that comes from a compliance standpoint from a legacy standpoint if they wanted to introduce a windows 2000 to that time right windows 2000 to windows 2003 or 4 upgrade they would mm-hmm. actually know how many applications they need to look at worry about oh, right okay this kind of uh, a perspectives is where i first started off with that enterprise architecture world right then you start looking at additional dimensions i am running a digital initiative these are the journeys i need to implement now go and figure out which are the applications i need to touch which is the data i need to touch so you kind of start elevating your 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 picture one on top of the other that's where the journey really started that's a perspective change from from building one application the classes and methods to the larger ecosystem okay see related to this people usually code that in the large complex designs usually mimic the organization structure yeah yeah, uh, yeah. is that something that you have come across or if you have to create a resilient design uh, how does that impact on an organization structure now typically this comes from creating specialist teams that focus on certain things so 
they want to have uh, maybe an arm's length kind of a relationship. So I said, I will do this, I will give the interface. So effectively, it's not a feature team kind of a model, but more based on technology or based on the organization structure. Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a two-way thing. In a large enterprise, it should some aspects of their their architecture should reflect the the way the organization is 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 actually structured, uh, the mimic the organization from that sense. But then there has to be several abstractions or common services which doesn't mimic the organization, yeah, okay. and which rather should feed in back to the organization how they should be restructured, yeah. So uh, essentially, one should look at it from both both sides. Otherwise, what happens is there will be a lot of redundancies, redundant, redundant investments that they will make and they will not move an inch because they would have, like, for example, they would have had the same software installed for, for three reasons. And then when, 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 a, when a reorganization happens or when merger and acquisition happens, they really literally struggle because any investment the organization makes, they end up having tons of data in, in those investments over years. So it becomes yeah. very difficult for them to change. So the, mm-hmm. the ideal thing would be look at all the common and, and shared services, make sure there is enough abstraction done at that level. Then only which needs to be on a line of business specific or whatever it needs to be, then that would mimic the organization structure. So there is a bit of a, a two-way approach that they need to take. That's what I've seen in very mature organizations. But, okay. but organizations which aren't that mature, we have seen them actually slowly getting to that model, but they do have a lot of redundant uh, uh, investments or maybe lack of investments, I would say, from that sense. Okay. You mentioned that uh, your initial grounding was on technology. Yeah. So from being a strong technology-oriented person, what did it take for you to understand organizations, understand businesses? Yeah. So that was an interesting because when I was doing my enterprise architecture work with some of the clients, mm-hmm. I within within a blink of the eye, I used to talk about. Uh, you know, this technology, that technology and all of that. And then people used to get disinterested a little bit because their problems are not at that level. Their problems are at a much much different level. Mm. So I was, I I had a good mentor, uh, of course, right? So he used to tell me, Pala, you just forget technology for a moment. You have to understand what these people are trying to solve by getting into this. So the the Windows 2000 problem I was saying, right? It is probably not as much to do with the code, but eventually Mm. get there. But but there has to be a lot of framework that we need to establish before we even get to. So the ability to understand the problems of why people are doing this and why you are there as an enterprise architect mm-hmm. helps actually reset the level at which I operate. That is one thing, right? Okay. Of course, there are opportunities for us to, mean, to get to that level of nuts and bolts in some areas, which is, which is okay. You might get into some of those areas, especially when it comes digital and all those initiatives. Yeah, you will actually get into okay, do you have all the designs of these applications? Which APIs you might want to do? Even mm. there, you get to that level, not below mm. that many times, right? Mm. So that level set happened after two or three engagements. And mm. when you see customers actually getting, you know, uneasy when you get down to level, they think, why are you even talking? It doesn't, it's not so important for me, that kind of thing. Mm. See, nowadays, at least in the cloud era, mm. there's a lot of talk of you know, microservices. Mm. So is that something that goes against the typical top-down approach for architecture or design? It is not. Actually, microservices architecture. So if I, if I take a step back, how we used to do our architecture. So we used to, from the old monolith areas, a long time back, in a, in a, two, two, in a client-server models, right? Even the client-server segregation was to componentize it enough so that there are 
there, there are changes could be made a bit more easily and then you mm -hmm. can actually manage it better. And then the next evolution was a three-tier architecture where we were able to componentize one more layer. I see two things which is which is helping the whole paradigm of architecture in a in a microservices world, where you're one you're actually even looking at the infrastructure as a code that you are building as part of your development. That is one thing. Second thing is you're able to really visualize this whole thing in the context of domain-led abstractions, right? So even microservices I have to I have to start from domain. It is not as much different from my SOA models where I have to okay. start from my domains. I have to get down to my bounded context and all of that. So essentially, it is not, it's not that different. The, okay. the only thing which is different is to where to apply and where not to apply. That's the only thing which is different. Otherwise, it really helps you with the, with the architecture paradigm from that side. Okay. So along with this movement to cloud, which at times seems to be either a fad or there is a lot of ambiguity or people have at least fears in terms of if I move to the cloud, will I lose control? Or if I move to the cloud, will I lose privacy and so on? And is there a change in thinking for an architect for designing a solution that will be rolled out on a cloud versus something that is all going to be on-prem or something that they control entirely? Actually, yes. Actually, yes, from the perspective that there are two, three foundational elements that are coming in the picture when somebody is architecting a solution for cloud, right? One, I mean, I wish those facilities were there even for on-prem. That's the way I look at it. Not very difficult. One mm -hmm. is, uh, how do I control the life cycle? How do I govern the life cycle of the application from build build software requirements and build will anyway happen based on mm -hmm. business uh, priorities and stuff like that. But when do I get them into production? How do I do the cutover? How do I apply my service management processes? All of that is a governance which is important. Like, for example, mm -hmm. when I get to cloud, one is there are two, there is a system which is running and then there is a system that is getting built, which is to mm -hmm. replace that, that whole system. Mm -hmm. Now the cutover and, and go live is an activity. If I look at, look back, long time back, it used to be a lot manual where mm -hmm. they would take it away, put another hardware, all that. It is still, but then you look at the, the, the what happens is all the same. But here mm -hmm. it is a lot more automated, which means... Mm -hmm. What happens? You need to give the right transparency to the to the to the application owners and the business. Which mm -hmm. means, in in the in the cloud, there are two three mechanisms I was talking. One is the transparency to the to the the application owners and teams as mm -hmm. to where these applications are getting deployed. How are they actually getting? How these access to these applications are actually getting translated to all of that? The mechanics of taking an application live, I would say. Okay. Okay. And then the second thing is data, the governance of, of data. For example, a new application getting in, into, into cloud means that it goes through a set of validations because mm -hmm. of the fact that you might have actually, for a company, you must have agreed that, okay, this data center or that data center of a cloud provider is okay because regulatory, all the reasons, but you still want to review your application data classifications and all the other stuff. Make sure it is not violating all the previous thinking. For example, okay. if, I, if an enterprise has decided to go with a certain provider in, in North America, mm -hmm. if, I, if a new application is going, into, going live there, mm -hmm. I want to make sure all the data that this application is dealing with, it is not violating, it's not any different from the analysis that was done before. Any new EI information or SPI information getting into this application, which is why to violate all the previous agreements, I need mm -hmm. to be So this kind of 
compliance related aspects needs to be transparently done now yes. a lot of these things are done through tooling and and they, they are part of your devops tool chains so you, okay. visibility and dashboard is important from that sense so yes. so the an application an architect who is designing the systems will have to consider the devops life cycle and okay. we will have to consider the automation elements of this and then we'll have to consider the security and other the classification dimensions and all the dimensions which for example it never used to be a problem for an architect solutioning designing a solution for on premise like 15 years ago because these mm -hmm. were not actually a big issue they mm -hmm. were by default taken care of because it's all there in the enterprise but the, all mm -hmm. all those things becomes much bigger issue as they go to cloud the the, the the skill of an architect changes drastically they need to be aware of cloud as a dimension the, the security as a dimension Okay. compliance aspects as a dimension and mm -hmm. automation and devops is a very fundamental dimension which people expect an architect yeah. to know while doing this yeah see that's interesting because one it is always the expectation that the architect knows everything yeah including you know what is coming yes exactly so, so this is uh, on two sides now one is when you are envisioning the solution you need to know not only what exists today and then what will be compatible, what will work and not work, but also make it a little future proof to see how it can be resilient. Yeah. On the other side, when you're working with the development team, how do you bring them up to speed on some of these concepts? Because typically most people seem to equate when you say DevOps, it's like, oh, okay, I'm using CICD, so I'm DevOps, or I have some automation, so I'm DevOps. But mm -hmm. what you mentioned about while there is a system running and then you need to make changes pretty much on the fly, whether there's the concepts of immutability or the site reliability and all those things, which probably earlier UI developer need not worry about. Mm -hmm. Somebody else kind mm -hmm. of takes care of that. Now we also talk about this being full stack and all that. So what is the architect's role in say guiding the team in terms of technologies to use or good practices that can be followed? Yeah. Yeah. So the, let me take a client example here. That will be a good, uh, uh, we worked with an, with an airline very recently. Their problem was this. They had a huge backlog on their website, which is whatever.com, where people mm -hmm. go for mm -hmm. uh, web check-ins and loyalty and all of that. And a uh, bit primitive site, a lot of issues, challenges in terms of uh, the features that clients wanted, customers wanted versus what they could get to. And the second thing is even the operational availability of those systems were pretty bad and uh, and a seven which beats them in a, in a couple of hours actually that's what happened okay. because because what happens airports some kiosk doesn't work or something doesn't work because all of it's a multi-channel so all of them goes there mm -hmm. and what happens is if that takes a couple of hours i mean at least they have to deploy more personnel on the on the on the counters and they have to address more customers on the counters as opposed to kiosks so Netted, their operational cost goes up, customer satisfaction is impacted. So think about the context here, right? So mm -hmm. the what we did was we we wanted to transform their their IT team, which is taking care of that part, into a, a DevOps enabled team, right? While transforming those applications into cloud. So two two pronged problem. One was transforming the applications into cloud because their data center was was getting outdated and they have to spend another 15 million to refresh that other rather they said let me move to cloud that was a context plus they want to say moving to cloud has to be associated with transformation of their it teams otherwise you move to cloud okay. but still they are going to continue the same traditional format so that was not a uh, an option for them 
So mm. keeping that in mind, what we did, and that could be the answer to your question, right? In, in a way, uh, one was get to, you will have a lot of features in your, in your web uh, interface. Now you have to figure out, I mean, the whole benefit of cloud is you can do incrementally, you can transform. You, you're mm. not doing a big bang, which, mm -hmm. which goes in line with the agile and DevOps models, as opposed to, okay, tell me all the requirements and I'll go back and come back in another. Right? So the fundamental thing was getting to the chunks of your application, the, the pieces of your application. And we, we used to call it design thinking. We did that workshops with them and to figure out which are those parts which are of the higher pain points and which are of those which are not as much as an issue today, but kind of we prioritize the entire applications into a bunch of functionality. Can be first, what can be second, what can be third. Then we did an architectural stuff with them. I would call all of them under the base framework setup kind of a thing, right? So okay. where uh, we established the landing zone for the cloud, we established the, the base DevOps tool chains, and then we established the, the frame of the application to be deployed, like the, the empty frame, right? Now you have that. Next is the team is traditional. They used to mm -hmm. do it in Java, Tomcat, and Oracle. They mm -hmm. take like three months to make a change and deploy. So now you need to get them into a this model, right? So what we did was we we took sessions with them on on microservices and APIs and all that. So kind of technical education, I would say, right? And also a bit about uh, Cloud Foundry and that was on Cloud Foundry. So that that whole cloud was. Okay. So okay. first is a technical upbringing of the team. That is level one, right? They need to know what are they working on, right? Otherwise, they know you can give them a bunch of Java specification. They can code to it, and the DevOps pipeline can build it, and they wouldn't even know what are they building which is even fine in some cases, but we did that. And second thing was we actually taught them test-driven programming. We, are, we also taught them pair programming because it was important because of two reasons. One was an IBMer, uh, IBM developer, was sitting mm -hmm. alongside the, the, the client's uh, developer and okay. we pairs for two reasons. One is they, they, they carry significant domain knowledge and functional and data knowledge of that application, which is getting modernized. Second is, um, you know, the IBM guy brings in the technology, uh, the microservices and all the dimension. Okay. So pairing would actually help uh, bring the other person also up to speed, uh, as well as leverage the domain uh, knowledge that person has, right? So because of which we created squads with pairs, and this was actually transforming these applications into, into cloud. And, okay. and into the into the ops, into the uh, into the DevOps tool chain, and then automatically get deployed into the production. So now, the important point was we also set some standards around GoLive because the whole service management also we looked at because I said two hours or seven will reach to will take to reach the the, the teams IT team. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we actually conducted a design thinking with the operations team on. What, what is challenging for them? Why is it taking two hours? What they would like to see in the system that can address this issue, right? They would want to see the issues much before the airport sees these issues, right? So, okay. so we got a bunch of dashboards that they wanted, alerts they wanted and all of that. And so what we did was along with the application getting built, we also built the operational tooling and the operational framework, you know? And then we embedded SREs into the squad, which I talked about. So, which means site reliability engineers were part of the development squad. They were actually building the operational framework as the applications were getting built. For okay. example, they would build the monitoring events 
they would actually build some of the automation things, something goes down, bring it up. So by the time application is ready for deployment, you already have a bunch of operational things which are tested for operational. This okay. okay. And then you, what you deploy is actually a system which is not to be operated, but is already operatable from that okay. side. Okay. And, and then that became a bit of a life cycle because this first thing was deployed in six weeks time. Okay. And which they never saw in their life. Something is getting deployed into production in six weeks time. And then that was actually a motivation for them to learn further, explore further and all of that. Now they're actually pretty much deploying everything on a per three weeks basis. Every incremental feature, all of that. So they, from a place where they can only deploy a change in three months, getting them to a, a framework where they can they actually work in a bit more agile and DevOps format. So which means you need to do many of these things to get them into. Otherwise you are really not leveraging cloud from that sense, which is what probably that answered your question. In a way. Yeah, nice. So how long did this transformation take? Yeah, so it was done in two, three ways. First was we spent some cycles preparing this team up, right? The design thinking I talked about, mm -hmm. the enable, technical enablement, boot camps we conducted. These were all like some of the pre-enablers, I would say. It was about, a, it was a team of size, so 60, 70 people overall they were doing okay. multiple things and okay. then it took like two three months to get them up to speed on some some technology to some level 101 level i would say okay so, okay then the first pilot we did for four months actually right okay um, and that four months uh, it was a lot of bad learning because you people did what did do a lot of things which shouldn't be like for example they built some monitoring hooks for the sake of it and then you go there you go through all the cycles right and then when it when you when it goes live and you claim that i have all the devops framework have the, all the ops stuff then people still the same issues are there and still it takes an hour to reach the thing so people question so then you understand appreciate why you need to have it in a bit more rigorous way so the rigor starts setting in, in the subsequent cycle so okay. to mature it took about six to nine months really the, the, the maturity oh, okay. to pick up but then the first four, four months was the was a trendsetter in terms of what they should have. Okay, nice. See, two other topics that usually come whenever we discuss cloud, at least a lot of questions that uh, I get when interacting with different teams. Now, one is the use of uh, open source components. Yeah. Both for the operations side, as well as in the solution itself, can we use you know, different components, which are open source. Now, what kind of challenges do you see when you mix and match something that is homegrown for these enterprise applications, something that is probably a third-party solution, plus you have these pieces also coming in. Yeah, so I think the challenges are two, three-fold, right? One is for every enterprise, they are governed by certain SLAs between the IT and business teams as well as between the business and customers, right? I mean, I put it that way, right? Mm. And, and to, for them to the investors also, in a way, right? So mm -hmm. if you look at that, that frame of things, mm -hmm. there are two, three challenges that, that they have to address. One is, is my IT systems reliable enough? Is it, is it supported or mm -hmm. does it have surprises? Mm -hmm. Does it have the right skilled people who can can do whatever it takes to run the business without impact. I mean, I'm just like stating it a bit abstractly, right, from that sense. But if I boil this down, there are two, three things which, which come into play, right? A, a software system that you are, you are actually building it, be it on cloud or on-premise, right? Today, it is inevitable that it will not have open source. It, everything and anything that you touch have some of the other open source. Mm -hmm. One thing which I would be cautious about, uh, in IBM being very careful about uh, the liabilities and all the other aspects. Mm. What we actually do is we make sure that we have an open source certification process. 
wherein okay. wherein there are certain open source which are certified because of the fact that it is matured enough and it is proven in in production scenarios and stuff like that and then okay. there are certain open source software which people look for supported by third party mm-hmm. third party agencies and stuff like that so they okay. stand the liability of it uh, and the ones which does not have essentially mm-hmm. the community versions or or these things stand mm-hmm. a huge bring in a huge set of challenges for enterprises in addressing what i said at the beginning right. something right. will break in that format yeah slas will break all compliance uh-huh. will break in all of that right okay. or, or there will be frivolous data leak that happens from that software which mm. people will never know until mm-hmm. they open up something right mm-hmm. so to that extent i think i need to have a set of processes in my in my in my system or in my company to watch out for these things Mm. apart from that i think today the good part is a lot of open source software are maturing i think there is absolutely no problem now in comes to third party solutions yeah i call it like for example there is a there is an insurance package called majesco let's mm-hmm. talk about that as an example mm. they are actually transforming their applications into container based ecosystem okay so each of these third party solutions are also getting pressure getting the pressure from the market to make sure that their software is compliant with with what the the broader open standards are right mm-hmm. so they should run on containers i mean the software shouldn't actually be very proprietary because people are very scared of proprietary software now mm-hmm. not only for for supportability reason but also for licensing challenges okay okay and this whole as a service notion is changing mm-hmm. the way even licensing world works and, okay. and it means somebody who is who is on a business of selling a software and walking away can never mm-hmm. make money in today's world they okay. actually have they can only make money if it is an asset service at least in utility based models mm-hmm. it brings in some sort of a long term commitments to the software companies also you can't mm-hmm. you can't build a product saying okay this year i'll run and see how it happens next year and walk away nobody yeah. so the, all this is going to is helping stabilizing this ecosystem much better now okay see a corollary or an extension of this is the thinking of ecosystems Hmm. because today you find that there is a lot of either incorporation or dependency on multiple applications from multiple providers working together hmm. and as a very crude or simple example probably maps there is somebody who provides map service but then pretty much everybody wants to use that or location based services and so on now when you do that you are not actually using open source as such but probably you are using either open data or those could also be licensed but for an architect the cycle of evolution you know for those components are not at all in your control mm. so what kind of challenges do you see in building systems like that or would you recommend building systems which leverage some other services that are already available yes i think that cannot be avoided because we did for example we did a, a retail site with talks which is about uh, cuisines and cooking and all of that and the mm-hmm. products around that space mm-hmm. this site essentially there is not much the site really builds but then it consumes 16 api 16 odd apis from different sources oh. to actually bring what is required so there is nothing that this guy really has but then the entire ip of this whole system is consuming the 16 aggregating creating value out of it right so okay. there are systems which are designed that way yeah okay. so you can't so that is that is a, a business requirement i think we we mm. cannot i would say yes it's a perfectly but then when you when you look at uh, how the industry is evolving 
um, it is evolving to a model where industry lines are getting blurred, like automotive and insurance are coming together, data and insurance, like for example, the IoT is spread horizontal. So what we used to think vertical is becoming horizontal, all that kind of stuff, right? Okay. So now that ecosystem thinking is, is already there. We are building software to it. The mm. only thing which I need to be careful, like a couple of things I would see. One is, do I have enough abstractions to stay proof from the one, the contract breakages and how do I buffer? My, I cannot pull my site down because one of the 16 APIs went off, right? So I need yeah. to have enough designs so that I'm not basing everything on a real-time integration with 16 APIs. I need to have some use cases which are primary, focus on, on aggregation and kind of, you know, I have to build something on my own, right? Right. So second, that is one thing. I have to stay proof from uh, real-time dependencies on all 16 of them. Yes, there are some like payments and all. Yes, they are real-time. I can't avoid mm. it. But then mm. I need to figure out which of these these services I consume should should stay proof from, from breakages and contract breakages and going out of business and all of that. Which of them I should build my own IP over a period of time. That is one thing which I need to worry about. Mm. Second thing is the service management elements around it. So this 16 API scenario I'm talking about, we actually monitored each and every every API. And mm-hmm. we put a monitoring dashboard around that. We actually used to run test scripts every few minutes to make sure these APIs are not breaking. Mm-hmm. And then the application, so any breakages would flag the, the business guys immediately and they would actually call them and, and figure out what is going wrong and all that. So it's very, it's a pretty governed uh, thing, right? You cannot, just like the consume an API and kind of serve it to your business, and, but then business needs to be part of that whole ecosystem. Right. Otherwise, they need to have business level partnerships. All of that should, should be established. Then the ecosystem will survive. Yeah. Just like that, building APIs around it, I wouldn't recommend. I, I think it needs to be driven by business. Yeah, that's a very good insight. I didn't realize, Bala, that we've been talking for more than half an hour. Wow, okay. I think whenever we do this, I think we get so deep into some of these topics. Right. Exactly. That many times we say that we probably have to come back and then have another conversation. Yeah. But before uh, that, I have one favorite question that I ask pretty much all our guests. Yeah. Is uh, having been in the industry and having seen so much of variety and so much of complexity and having grown yourself, what would be your advice to people who are considering either a career in IT? Today, of course, there is a lot of doubt saying, will the AI take away all our jobs or no mm-hmm. IT jobs and so on? Or people who are, let's say, mid-career, today we find that also a challenge, who want to know what they should do next. Okay. So interesting thing, I was actually reading one WhatsApp post, I would say, right? Sometime back. It said in another few years, the jobs which have creative elements will stay and the jobs which does not have creative elements will be automated. I mean, that kind of gave me a very interesting insight into, you know, how should today's... uh, folks should look at their career, right? Okay. I think stay on the creative side of the world. And, mm-hmm. and basically boils down to the IT and software world is that do not become an order taker. Don't have someone tell you the requirements and you, you build it. That's a very simple mm-hmm. way of looking at whatever level it is, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm a developer, don't look up for somebody to give you all the specifications for me to build it. If I'm an architect, I need to go figure out because today's business guys also do not exactly know what they are trying to build. Everybody are trying to experiment and innovate. So any assistance to drive more value will be, will always, I've seen it being welcome everywhere. So my advice to the folks would be, think about, uh, are you on the creative side or are you on the, on the non-creative side? Okay. And if you are 
too far on the non creative side you you probably are staring at a stagnant career or maybe a downfall career but if you think you are being creative and you are trying to get into a lot of people i get uncomfortable when they are thrown in a in a not so used not so familiar scenarios i think they should develop an an attitude i would say to say i want to get into unfamiliar scenarios okay. i think these are all the things which uh, which i would really advise technology comes second because they can always learn beat microservices apis or containers i think all of them it's in any way it's a basic i would i would think they need to learn they need to stay hands on i mean even i would try to be hands on today writing code but i think that becomes a hygiene factor and and when somebody learns how to code it's a it's a commodity but then the creative side of the world actually takes you further that's my advice thanks bella it's been wonderful talking to you and i'm sure our listeners might have more questions and we'll include some of your contact details in the show notes yeah, absolutely thanks for making the time and sharing thanks, your perspective thanks for the opportunity shift thank you so much Thank you Siddharth for composing the intro and outro music for this podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com.